Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Bango. If you're looking to spruce up your space and add inspiration to your home or office, there's no better way than original art. And Bango is changing the way we discover art from some of the best emerging artists. So visit bangoart.com or download the Bango app on iTunes and use promo code State of the Art to get 15% off your first purchase. Now, allow me to welcome today's guest. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome Stefan Simkowitz. Stefan is an art collector and mentor for emerging artists and has been called the art world's patron saint. And with words as provocative as these, it was definitely one of our most fascinating guests. His controversial reputation comes from both supporting and creating markets for new artists, and then exploiting and abandoning these same artists. His style of art flipping goes against the establishment grain. Today, I talked to Stefan about what artists really need, how he's disrupting the art establishment, and the myth of the art connoisseur. So please, allow me to welcome today's guest, Stefan Simkowitz. I think, yeah. I think the whole, like, part of the f- philosophy is you, you know, I think people are very, are very fearful. They, they sort of feel that there's a lot of risk of the unknown, of things, of, and, and there is a lot of risk, but I'm very positive, very optimistic. I think the chances of of a good outcome far outweigh bad outcomes, and you have many more engagements with people, but, like, there are certainly bad ones because you engage yeah, yeah, but but I think you're opportunistic. And like, I, I, I don't, it's not it's not like opportunistic. I don't think it's opportunistic. I think it's I think it's open. Yeah, I think like these conflations between being open and being opportunistic is like. I, 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 you're right. You're right. Because you could be you could you could not be open to all time and then have an upgrade come across and then you take it versus literally just being open to. Uh, spontaneity or just like yeah the rand randomness i mean i yeah. think that i think like great things happen like they're like there's you know you heard the term black swan event yeah i read the i read the book but i think there's like white swan events as well yeah and i think like people don't talk about oh i had a white swan event like you know oh, that's interesting you have you ever heard of people saying i had a white swan event no like i like i happen to be mark zuckerberg's roommate and like i, I bought a server and i'm worth five billion dollars that's a white swan event yeah they happen and i think you can you can avoid black swan events by by eliminating risk and um and you can create white swan events by creating more random interactions with people yeah and finding art is very random it, it is and so you say yes, but then you're also really good at saying no and leave or leave. Yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm very good at, at having a very direct engagement, a very kind of like, yeah, you're a bad artist, yeah, but you're an interesting person. There's also like you, you find people who are like very interesting people, like scientists. I think 
you know, sometimes people are like, I'm a ba- your, 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 your work's not good, but you're an interesting person. Yeah. You know, like, I think a lot of people tie their identity. If you don't like my work, then, you know, but people that they've read books, they're interesting people they have conversations sure. with. People are like colored pencil sets. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think you can learn from everyone. Yeah. Or engage with everyone in different ways. What, uh, I mean, yeah, it's funny because with, with Matty Mo, you said his art sucks. It's a, he's a terrible artist. But he's, but he's an outward facing person and you like that. I love him. I think he's great. I yeah. think, and why I think he's great is because he knows I think he's a terrible artist. Yeah. He accepts the condition of that relationship. Yeah. And, and, and he's, he's willing to engage and discuss and, and bring it in. And he's willing to have someone who he respects publicly in a in conversation with them say he's a terrible artist and not i think he's it's, it's not brave or courageous but i think his he's correct you know mm-hmm. in his ideas he's uh this idea that you have to be on the right side of things always is 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 incorrect or like you should only be with people who think you're a great artist or like you know this mediation of you know people around you who just agree with you i think yeah. this is the problem we need we need this dialectic which which sort of social media is trying to sort of destroy yeah really of, you think so well, Why? this Hegelian kind of idea of conflict and resolution, because social media sort of sort of groups you algorithmically with your like-minded people. I see what you mean, yeah. I think it's important. What do you think it takes? I mean, to be, I guess, a successful artist. Like, do you think Maddie Mo takes talent? Yeah. It's like, what does it make to be a successful thinker or an intellectual? Yeah. You can be learned. You can write professionally and competently, but to be a great thinker, you have to instinctively see the world in a sort of a multi-dimensional way it's instinct you can't yeah. and i think great artists they can become practiced it pours out of them it's like they're like taps that you turn on and the water flows out sure and you can make art you can copy art you can create art but i think there's like a, a flow to it mm-hmm. and it just pours out of you yeah i guess it's true i mean this is quite philosophical but there's difference then i guess between being great at something and being successful Oh, to- total difference. So guess- and, and, and there's a difference between recognized as great because, yeah. because just like I think the instinct of creating art is very similar to people having the instinct of being able to see art. Yeah. Most people don't see art either. They, they, th- that's why the bourgeois sort of they're like, well, we can teach you how to see art. You can become learned and then you'll be, you, can, you can develop taste. You can learn taste. You yeah. can't. It's an instinct. So, so the art system has built up this extraordinarily large business in yeah. in teaching taste but they're not they're not it's not instinctive it's yeah. it's it's sort of this is good this is good it's terrible most of the stuff is terrible when you look at the auction catalogs and you look at work by Jim Dine and Red Grooms and you know even even great artists have made a lot of bad work like Lichtenstein has made a lot of sure ugly ass work yeah you know, but like, well, you learn Lichtenstein's important, therefore everything he does is good. And therefore, you know, so because there's a very high barrier to entry to learning about art. It's very yeah. expensive. The knowledge curve is quite expensive. Well, it's like anything. It takes thousands of hours to become really good at it. Yeah, a lifetime. Yeah. Not Malcolm Gladwell's like 10,000 hour rule. No, longer. Yeah, exactly. He's like, how do you define it? Depends. For some people, it's quicker and for other people, it's shorter. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you say it's instinctual, then it would take no time or a little less time yeah i mean people i think people have people are instinctively good at different things Mm -hmm. you know and i think everyone's pretty good at different things yeah 
you know, like I, I have this amazing sort of lymphatic drainage massage therapist. Her name's Cindy. She's in her 60s. She's brilliant. Yeah. And she's like, you have so much knowledge. I'm like, I do, Cindy, but I don't have knowledge of the body like you have. You know, you've yeah. studied in China. And she didn't recognize her knowledge as knowledge. Sure. She recognizes a trade, but she has immense knowledge of the body, of the drainage system, of things that like, because it was what she does for a living, she, did, she didn't recognize it as knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you see that just with like general communication. You know, we don't appreciate what we know, whether that, well, yeah, whether it is knowledge or information. And if you think about it, it consumes you all the time. Sometimes you forget to like project it outwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw like one of the clips you had was where you said like this guy who had bought a million dollar piece of art wouldn't know a blue chip from a brown chip if it hit him in the head. Most of these people <laughs> would not know the difference yeah. between a pigeon and a flamingo. Yeah. I mean, they, they have no idea. They just, it's a flamingo. And then you hang a pigeon on the wall and they're like, how do you like my flamingo? And you're like, this beautiful flamingo. <laughs> it's great. You happy? I'm happy. Yeah. Would you like another flamingo? Sure. Well, here's a flamingo. <laughs> Sell yeah. him another pigeon. I mean, I mean, the, you know, we are in a extraordinarily dangerous time. Yeah. Why is that? Because the extension of this, um, of this sort of construct of society whereby truth is profane and illusion is sacred is almost complete. This cycle of post-war sort of corporate, cultural, socioeconomic, political dominance has almost reached its apotheosis in our culture and our society. Yeah. Where our relationship to even understand what the truth is through knowledge is so far, far removed from society and so far sort of uh, alienated from our, our 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 ability to even access the correct information mm -hmm. that it, it it is a profound sort of moment in our in, in our sort of uh in our democracy yeah and you've seen that yeah i mean it's ironic right because the internet puts all the information at your fingertips but now just what right in the last election or even before like probably the last four years it's really using it for misinformation what people put in front of them it's interesting because I saw, so I saw Hamilton. Have you seen Hamilton? Not yet. You got to see it. Um, I saw, I've seen it three times. I saw it the same week of the election. And I think the two of it, the two together had like a very profound effect on me. And, and coming out of that is like civil engagement and then also just studying American revolutionary history. Anyways, throughout this process, one of the things I learned was that the first president we had that really was an open liar was James Van Buren. So he was what, from like 1864 to something like after two presidents after Jackson. Anyways, before that, like, you know, your honor was everything and you defend it, right? You go to a duel. I mean, you'd shoot someone if they called you a liar. And he was actually the first president that ever like openly just like lied. But now that's like, I mean, it's gotten to a point where like well, every, said, it's every kind of, administration, 
has has lied in the I mean in the post war period at least. Yeah, know, they've lied I mean, about Vietnam. They've lied about you know they they've lied about how much spending military spending there. But but culturally, you know what's very interesting to me is that the culture industry is very much aligned to a sort of a system that is sort of liberal and allegedly democratic and is is sort of is, is one of the forces that is sort of marginalizing people in the center mm -hmm. from not being able to have a voice and this is happening on the right and the left yeah so like i think that culture is very i don't like the word important but is like a vapor that goes through society because it's um without protesting or without hitting the streets it's sort of high culture fil filters through society like mm -hmm. and that's i'm talking about great novels great art great music they're like the carrier pigeons of ideas and they sort of they 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 carry the sort of virus of thinking you know whether it's bob dylan's you know songs or Bob Marley or great American novels, you know, from you know the fifties and the sixties, and mm -hmm. you know, they they discuss war, they they discuss identity, they discuss politics, they they discuss all of these things. Um, but the minute that high culture is corrupted um, and subjugated by the forces of either the radical left or the radical right, mm -hmm. they become fascist. And they become uh, mechanisms of propaganda for the corporate state that has effectively taken over our society. Mm -hmm. So the marginalization of culture as it's produced at the center uh, is lost and and has to be preserved in a sense, or has to have uh, ha has to have mechanisms of distribution. And financing for its production and longevity, mm -hmm. and I think that the establishment, the institutional, educational, and and, and even big gallery establishment, um, has a set of operating principles that are sort of defined by morality. It's, these things are always defined by sort of the moral structures of sort of morality and the ensuant hypocrisy of the moralities that they sort of agendas that they have. Yeah, and the right has it as well that what I'm doing within my business and my practice is trying to figure out a a logical system of production financing and distribution so that we can not only preserve a, a, a central idea of art production mm -hmm. but make that sustain itself profitable to some degree scalable and I don't and I don't use the word scalable in terms of Facebook or Twitter mm -hmm. I mean in terms of sustainable in that you can live to fight another day scalable you yeah. know um where you have artists who have practices that are that are somehow liberated from these agendas uh whether those agendas are sort of big money agendas of sort of proliferating sort of popular art that's not particularly good at high prices or whether it's the agenda on the other side of proliferating sort of sort of 
intellectually neutered art that sort of is politically correct on every front and therefore has a discourse that is quote unquote important. Mm -hmm. And and I think the sort of the marginalization and misunderstanding of 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 the center is one of the reasons why we are you, you know becoming so alienated from each other. Now, for all of you listeners who are looking to replace your boring IKEA poster or add another piece to your collection, Van Gogh can help. Van Gogh's revolutionizing the way we discover art. They use machine learning to recommend art that you'll like, augmented reality to let you visualize that art above your couch, and live chat to let you text directly with designers, all from your iPhone. They made finding my first piece fun and easy. So don't wait, visit bangoart.com or download the app on iTunes and use the promo code state of the art for 15% off your first purchase. Now, back to the episode. From an artistic point of view, there's a lot of amazing production happening in this sort of middle ground that is completely, I mean, I just bought work from a, a, a young artist who had a ceramic show at South Willard. Amazing ceramicist. Uh, her name's Jasmine Little. And Ryan Condor, who is this brilliant guy, runs a small gallery out of his clothing store. He has a handful of clients. Myself, Mark Grochan, the artist, who's very famous. Jonas Woods, Beth DeWoody. Mm -hmm. He's like got like four or five clients who like are like the, the best collectors in the world, and they buy everything. And no one else like engages. And we had this show, and and no one bought the work. I mean, you know, I, 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 when I say no one, I don't mean Jonas, Mark, or, or Beth, but sort of, and it's great work because it's it doesn't fit the bone. I saw the work and I contacted the artist, met with her, and bought a whole bunch of work from her, and she's amazing. And I'm like, and the paintings arrived this week, and we we unrolled them, these big canvases that were unbelievably strong. And I called, I said, it is amazing that you've been producing art, and have 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 been you know, have just producing this quality of art, but mm -hmm. not, but like completely outside of the system, you know, that the system hasn't engaged and, you know, and there are reasons why she doesn't live in like New York or LA. Yeah. You know, they're, 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 they're sort of geographical reasons. And I really want to challenge this construct. Yeah. So, I mean, with an artist like that, I mean, how do you, like, what does it take then to give money? That it takes money so yeah. that the artist can produce. Yeah, but you so, said she was producing. Well, she was, but but you know, producing like the ceramics at her brother's house, the yeah. paintings and storage. You know, an artist, you know, can't open and close a studio, can't move from place to place. You know, an artist needs a studio, mm -hmm. needs a needs a place to work, a place to uh, have the right pigment when they need it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I think the core to my strategy is production first, distribution second mm -hmm. so if you can construct an environment where the artist can produce um safely material and safely means not having to worry about digging a trench next week to meet the rent mm -hmm. then they will make better work mm -hmm. they will they will be able to contemplate the work you know i mean if you look at you know the greeks you know the, the great thing was you'd have time to contemplate yeah. To, to read and to think we need more of that yeah, yeah. and and artists that is the 
that's the sort of the, the kind of environment that artists prosper in. Yeah. And I think if you can provide that for artists, and if you can recognize instinctively artists who have talent, then they uh, they, they they emerge in a in a very powerful way. Yeah. Let me ask you this: You talk about the myth of the art connoisseur, and then also here, like creating work outside of the system. I mean, tell me more about that. What do you think it takes for artists to be supported outside the system from a collector perspective? If every artist had a platform and the money to create and distribute, do you think that there are collectors that would come to I mind? think there are. I think there's there's a huge diversity of collectors. I think if if pricing was more reasonable at the early stage, if 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 there wasn't this environment that you sort of every artist is like waiting to be with David Zwerner and, mm. and making all their decisions based on that. And and very few of them reaching that. So ten years later, they're failed because yeah. you know you don't need to that like path. Is there's a thousand paths? Understanding there are a thousand paths is important. And the myth of the connoisseur is really a mythology that is created to sell expensive art to people, so that you can be like, oh, you like you like Anish Kapoor. You're a connoisseur. I mean, like high high school student like who's doing a basic course in contemporary art knows about Anish Kapoor, but the guy just sold his aluminum company for a billion dollars. Like, oh, wow, I'm a connoisseur. Yeah, I've heard of Anish Kapoor. Wow, I have knowledge. So the myth of connoisseurship is, is, is really like the way of making very wealthy people feel comfortable with their consistently bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And it sort of allows you to sort of sell them a kind of a prepackaged kind of format that they feel very comfortable with yeah but the connoisseur the real connoisseur can walk into a little gallery in alabama and see like the prophet royal robertson's amazing works on paper yeah for 800 dollars, and look at them and be like hmm that's cool i'm gonna buy that that's interesting and and i'm not saying that anish kapoor is not a great artist because they are undeniably great artists so they end up being sort of defensively indefensible positions or indefensively defensible positions. Yeah. But these artists developed in an, in another period of time, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they emerge. What I'm very concerned with today is, is, is people collecting a contemporary agenda, not an echo of greatness, which is, you know, what people feel safe with. Oh, I'm going to collect, Ed Ruscha, because it's safe. You know, people who bought Ed Ruscha in the 60s and 70s were collecting contemporary art. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Ed Ruscha then. I think people have gotten very comfortable with this idea of collecting these sort of, these uniformed constructs, these, brand, these branded identities. And I think, you know, for me, my core mission is how do you compete with this monolithic structure? Yeah. Because if you do that, I mean, the pie grows for everyone. Because like you said, there are collectors or potential collectors out there who want, you know, to collect, but don't even know sort of where to begin or the prices are out of their, you know, price range. And so like that chasm just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, I mean, I, I had someone call me yesterday, very rich people. And they were like, they're, they're, they're young in their thirties, hugely rich family. And they don't want to go and spend like $300,000 on paintings off the bat. Yeah. And they don't have a maximum. They want to spend 5,000, 10,000, 15,000. Yeah. As an entry point. Maybe in three, four years they'll spend three hundred. Maybe in ten years they'll spend millions. But that entry point, yeah, where you can buy good stuff, and I believe you can, is that window's closing. And what's happening is the gallery system is left with their 
connoisseurs who are on the board of the museums who are no longer really collectors. Mm -hmm. They're sort of the investor class of collectors, the sort of shareholder class. And they are, um, it's sort of like a closed circuit now. And it's, you need to open it up. And I think it's, you need, you need to open that up. And, and it's much more constrained today. You talk a lot about bridging this gap. I mean, I just like, I'm diving, I'm pushing on this because, you know, the, so this podcast, what I'm really interested in is how do we bridge this gap? How do we get more people comfortable with taking that first step? And, and I think what you said ring, rings so true, even at less than 3,000, I mean, people who, be, who would spend 500, then 1,000, then 5,000, eventually. You, you don't try sell them art. You try sell, you, you got to try make them understand that what they're doing is not cool. Yeah. So what most people do is, oh, you should buy this instead of that. Yeah. And like what most galleries do is like, oh, that gallery is terrible. They sell bad art. Yeah. They try and sort of, it's, 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 they try to split. You know, it's, have you heard of the term yeah. splitting? Splitting is a, is a psychological term for, you know, for creating confidence with someone. So, you know, I meet you and, 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 and I, I, and you know, Maddie Mo. Mm-hmm. So I try to split the two of you. Yeah. It's like what, what Trump does. Oh, Matt. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. It's splitting. Yeah. You know, so what the gallery does is, oh, they're a terrible gallery. They're, they're not good people. And like, the, yeah. in the art world, you have a lot of splitting, like this kind of like. Totally get it. Yeah. So you first, first of all, have to understand you have to sort of collaborate with each other because the real mission is much bigger and changing the goalpost of, of what people want. So instead of, instead of making it cool to be a connoisseur and buy Damien and Richard and Ish Kapoor, well, it's cool they're good artists, but you, you can't afford the right things. You know, maybe it's cool to do this instead. Mm-hmm. So you want to sort of change. I think it's very similar to how like the non-smoking campaign kind of did it. So funny, yeah. I was thinking, I, I was, I was thinking of the milk campaign, or milk campaign, similar yeah. one, yeah, which is, which is an evil campaign because it milk be, be, because the dairy industry is it's like bad. One of the, one I know, of the but great the, evils, but yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunately you have to use the sort of the corporatist tools of psychological sort of um advertising or marketing but you 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 sort of want to sort of fulfill the agenda or like the environmental movement consume less meat people are consuming less yeah. meat and you want to say you know take risk you know you don't have to make money of every artwork you buy there's this idea you know i have oftentimes have clients and they come and they well if i buy it for five thousand will be worth more in a year i said tell me something when was the last time you went to london they're like, oh, I went three months ago. I'm like, so did you fly economy, premium economy, business or first? So like, we flew business. I'm like, how much was the ticket? They're like four thousand dollars. I'm like, so are you going to try sell your? Are you going to try sell? <laughs> that, that is great. I like. I need. I love that. I'm like, are you going to try sell that? Sell that in two years? Like after you flew business to London for twenty four hours, are you going to try get a refund on that? Yeah. So when you buy this painting for four thousand dollars and you live with it on your wall for five years, yeah. Does it really matter if it's worth two or fifty in five years? So, like breaking that, breaking that idea yeah. that every object you buy, you buy your sofa, you throw your sofa away after ten years if you've if you've, you know, not yeah. or you give it away after it's dinged up and beaten up. Like this idea that everything you buy, when it's on the wall or an object of art, has to increase in value. Yeah, is 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 and 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 this and this way of thinking. I believe has been created by the art establishment. Yeah. 
who essentially says that art is not decorative, and if it's decorative, it's bad. Yeah. If it's decorative, and and it 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 is very much part of sort of this patriarchal structure of thinking. Mm-hmm. Decorative is female, or decorative is ethnic. Mm. So you oftentimes see as a criticism for art, it's too decorative. Yeah. It's too ethnic. You know. So what they're really saying, if you think about it, it's being criticized yeah. on these sort of polarities. But when you take away an art works utility and you say well it's not decorative it shouldn't decorate yeah okay well art's not decorative then okay let's remove that what is it then it's an asset so therefore you must buy must go up in money and and this is why like some of the best clients are decorators who are like buying art because they buy it for the client the client doesn't know what they're buying but it sits on the wall for 25 years decorating a home because it has a function yeah so the minute you remove its functionality and you say well the good collector the connoisseur understands that that the artwork doesn't decorate the home, but it's intellectual and it's it's institutional and it's important. They'll pretend that they'll pretend yes, yeah, but it just becomes an asset class. Yeah, I mean, I read somewhere they said there's three reasons people buy art: you know, financial power or prestige, and decorative. And the decorative one is the one that's looked down upon Let's as you said but it's also the one that is most about the artwork itself exactly which is like like the ironic thing exactly the irony of it and i got into this sort of conversation in the press recently because i like joseph albers i've been buying a lot of joseph albers <clears throat> and i was like look joseph albers is a really great decorative artist he makes a square very beautiful it's got different colors they're beautiful decorative objects and they yeah. go everywhere and one of the representatives from Zwerna was like, Joseph Elbers is not a decorative artist. I'm like, you're actually wrong, you know? Because when my friend, you know, Irving Blum was asked in the 1960s to go find something green above the couch, he went to Sidney Janice and he said, I've got a, I've got a great idea, green Joseph Elbers. <laughs> so again, it's about flattening the sort of moral structures that the establishment has so efficiently created. And they've really created those structures mm-hmm. for their own financial benefit. Yeah. The irony of it is, yeah. is, is they're not real structures, they're actually inauthentic structures. Yeah. Just like we started this episode a little differently, we're going to end it differently as well. This week we're doing a two-part series. So please tune in Thursday to hear the rest of my conversation with Stefan. And until then, visit us on Twitter at State of the Art or on Instagram to see sneak peeks of the second part of this episode. And thanks again to Van Gogh for sponsoring this episode. Remember, if you want to enrich your home with original art, visit VanGoArt.com or download the app on iTunes and save 15% off your first purchase with promo code STATEOFTHEART. Until next week, you can reach out to me directly on Twitter at Ethan Appleby with your thoughts, feedback, and compliments. I also want to thank everyone on the team. State of the Art is a team effort here at Van Gogh. And I couldn't have done it without Deepak Kanda, who runs creative outreach and is a jack-of-all-trades, to Wes Stevens, who's the most meticulous audio engineer and makes me sound way better than I should, and with special help from Clara Pryke and Amanda Hart. Thanks, and signing off of State of the Art.